like I said, both sides do this. The the side that wants to scare you does this. The side that wants to say this isn't a problem does this. And a, a real scientist, and there aren't that many of them. There really aren't that many real scientists these days. But real scientists like Richard Lindzen, for example, who's a climatologist, look at both sides. Uh, and, and Richard Lindzen's conclusion is, yes, there's a little bit of warming. No, we have no idea how much of it is due to humans. And no, we have no idea how much is going to happen in the future. Hi, and welcome to One Little Candle, a place where genuine believers are encouraged, empowered, and inspired to be the light that God calls us to be by contending for the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his people so that we may pass down undefiled the truth of God's infallible word to the next generation. And in case you're thinking that you can't make a difference in your own little corner of the world, Yes, you can, because all it takes is one little candle. I'm your host, Rebecca Bershwinger. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. One Little Candle is a member of the Christian Podcast Community, where you'll not only find great podcasts like this, but you'll also find great podcasts such as these. Ever wish you could get together with a friend over coffee each week and talk about God's Word? Me too. Hi, I'm Anthony Russo. I'm the host of Grace and Peace Radio. Grace and Peace Radio is a Christian living blog and podcast dedicated to engaging conversations about applying God's Word to everyday life. I hope you'll join me, Anthony Russo, on Grace and Peace Radio each week at graceandpeaceradio.com or right here on the christianpodcastcommunity.org. Andrew Rappaport's Rap Report is a podcast providing biblical interpretations and applications. It is a ministry of striving for eternity and part of the Christian podcast community. We provide a biblical view of cultural events, discuss how to apply God's word to the Christian life, address issues that concern the church, and we even take some time to offer a correct understanding of those commonly misinterpreted passages of scripture. You will hear from great guests like Justin Peters, Todd Friel, Jay Warren Wallace, and Gabe Hughes. Andrew has the Rap Report Daily, which is a two-minute Monday through Friday podcast, and then the longer Rap Report podcast for more content. Subscribe to both today by searching for Rap Report on any podcast app, spelled R-A-P-P, Report, or click the podcast link at strivingforeternity.org. So check it out at christianpodcastcommunity.org. Hey, how are you today? Thanks so much for joining me. I am going to go off the beaten path today and tackle a subject that I honestly know very little about. But what I do know about this subject is that I'm hearing about it all the time. It's on television, it's on the commercials, it's in the news, it's in the magazines, it's on social media. Our government leaders speak of it often. And that is the subject of global warming or climate change. And the reason I decided to try and tackle this today is because many of the advertisements about global warming or climate change really seem to be, in my opinion, fear-mongering. They are inducing fear in people And I say this because of one particular commercial 
or ad that was put out by Science Moms. And so this ad by Science Moms in regard to climate change, it's focusing on a newborn baby. Of course, it shows a picture of a mom with her newborn baby. And every time I I see that commercial, I think, it sounds like they're saying that in the next 18 years, by the time a child goes to college, there's not going to be a world left or there's just going to be all these horrendous problems. So many animals are going to be gone and and um, wildfires galore and and floods and sea levels rising dangerously and you won't be able to, to breathe. The air will be just so horrible. But is that the case? I mean, we hear these things, but I think many of us, we hear these things and we just assume that the people who put them out know what they're talking about or have some sort of distinct, clear data on what's going on and and to what is going to happen in the very near future, right? One would think. But I think many people just jump on the bandwagon without truly knowing. Um, Obviously, none of us knows what the future holds. We're not God. We're not supposed to know. But I think many jump on the bandwagon not knowing any of the science, any of the true non-politicized, I quote, non-politicized research, because that's very important. So with the help of a pretty well-known scientist by the name of Dr. Jay Weil, I'm going to ask some questions about what we're seeing and hearing and and hear what he has to say as a scientist and most importantly, a Christian scientist, what he has to say about climate change and the notion that our world is on the brink of being destroyed because of climate change. Dr. Weil holds an earned PhD in nuclear chemistry and He's also won several awards for excellence in teaching and research. He's an internationally known speaker. He's presented lectures on the topics of nuclear chemistry, Christian apologetics, homeschooling, and creation versus evolution in several different countries. He's best known for his award-winning K-12 science textbooks designed specifically for homeschoolers, and I can attest to how wonderful those textbooks are as a homeschooling mom. Dr. Weil's knowledge is is pretty far-reaching in many areas, and lucky for me, Dr. Weil agreed to come on One Little Candle and share some of his knowledge in regard to climate change. So I know, as I did, that you will learn a lot from him, and I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you. And maybe you're thinking, well, what does this have to do with One Little Candle's mission, right? And that is encouraging and empowering others to be the light that God's called us to be. But let me tell you, if if we're buying into certain things that maybe aren't necessarily true, or or if we're living in fear, most importantly, if we're living in fear of something, we're not going to be a light. Because God has told us to fear not. But I see a lot of people fearing what's to come. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the acronym for fear, false evidence appearing real. Well, let's take a look at the evidence today and see if there is any evidence for the notion that our world is about to collapse because of melting ice caps 
um, or, or global warming or, you know, wildfires taking over, such things that we hear when people talk about climate change. So today's episode is part one of a two-part series, and I really enjoyed talking with Dr. Weil. He's very engaging, very informative. So anyway, okay, enough of the chatter. Let's just get right on to um, part one of my interview with Dr. Jay Weil. Hello, Dr. Weil. How are you? Oh, very good. How are you? I'm doing well. How are things in your neck of the woods? Well, it's a little cold here, but uh, we're, we're doing okay. Same here. Now we're bracing for, I guess, a pretty big storm on Sunday. But hey, that's the Northeast for us. Yeah. And you're what? You're in Indiana? Yeah, we're in Indiana. How are your winters compared to New York? Are they a uh, little milder? Not really. Uh, no. And and the problem is we stay humid all year, even when it's uh, winter. So it's a wet cold here in Indiana. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Okay. Either way, it's cold, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, well, thanks again for joining me today um, and coming on here. I've already, yeah, I've already introduced you to our listeners, but before we start, I do have a two-part question I'd like to ask you. Okay. And the first is, what exactly is nuclear chemistry? So a nuclear chemist is someone who wants to know what the nucleus of an atom, how it actually works. So we know that the, the nucleus contains a bunch of neutrons and protons, and that's it. So, you know, most uh, chemists want to study the whole atom or how the atom links to molecules. I'm not interested in the whole atom. I'm only interested in the center, the protons and neutrons. Uh, the problem is how do they actually behave? So is it like a bunch of individual uh, particles moving around in this uh, center? Or is it some something where they more like glob together and hold on to each other? Um, and that's what we're interested in finding out. We do know that the nucleus has some uh, features that indicate that they're, that the neutrons and protons sort of hang on to each other. Uh, but we also know there are other in, in, uh, indications that the neutrons and protons behave fairly independently. And my specific research is to try and figure out how much uh, behavior um, uh, exists between the new between the protons and neutrons uh, we call that collective behavior how they behave collectively uh, and so the question is how much of the nucleus's behavior is based on the collective nature of all the protons and neutrons together and how much is based on the individual protons and neutrons oh jeez <laughs> well my question is what what led you what leads a person to to pursue a career or an education in something like that well, I mean, yeah, I wasn't sure I was going to be an educator. I uh, I was getting a PhD and, you know, uh, thinking might be a scientist, might be a professor, who knows what I'm going to be. Uh, but what I found was the more chemistry I did, the more fascinated I was with the mathematical connection. And mm. nuclear chemistry is about the most mathematical version of chemistry you can do. Oh, okay. So. You lost me at the math. <laughs> not my thing, not my thing. Yeah. But well, obviously, this is not an episode about um, nuclear chemistry no. or, or any <laughs> of these things. But I just, I was really curious when I was reading uh, your bio and stuff. I thought, and you've I probably don't heard even of, know what that is. Yeah, you've probably heard of nuclear physicists. And, yes. But nuclear physicists are much more interested in trying to find out all the fundamental pieces that that uh, that are in the nucleus. So there are a lot of particles besides protons and neutrons. They're all mm -hmm. short-lived. Uh, and that's what nuclear physicist is interested in. It, he, it, okay. he or she is interested in finding all the little bits that make up the nucleus. I don't care about the little bits. I care only about the neutrons and protons and how they interact. And that's usually what separates nuclear chemist from a nuclear physicist. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, obviously, like I said, that's not what we're focusing on today, right. but we're, we're going to talk about climate change. You also have a lot of expertise um, in a lot of areas. I mean, how I first heard of you was through homeschooling. Mm-hmm. I homeschooled my children and the books, their science books were fantastic that we had, the Exploring Creation series. Mm-hmm. And the kids really enjoyed them. They understood them. And I actually enjoyed them as far as teaching teaching one. They, they were fantastic. So I am well aware of much of your, your knowledge. Mm. But as you know, my intent for this episode is to hopefully provide a rational, proper perspective for people who succumb to fear mm-hmm. in response to some of the reports and commercials and things we hear today about the global warming of our planet. Mm. And I'd like to, I want to just start by sharing with you a commercial. And I see this commercial that's constantly playing on my TV. It's put out by a group called Science Moms about climate change. And it says this, by the time she, and they're talking about, you know, they have a newborn baby, a mother holding a newborn in her arms. And so they're talking about the newborn child. It says, by the time she takes her first breath, 9 billion more tons of carbon pollution will be in the air By the time she takes her first steps, wildfires will have burned millions more acres than she could have that she could have explored. By the time she gets her first pet, there will be thousands of newly extinct species she will never get to meet. The night she forgets to call, the night of her first heartbreak, her future home floods for the first of many times. By the time a child born today goes to college, it may be too late to leave them the world we promised. Our window to act on climate change is like watching them grow up. We blink and we miss it. Um, for me, when I read that, I'm thinking, well, first of all, it's 18 years, right? By the time a kid grows up and goes off to college or whatever, it's not a, it is not a very big window. But for me, when I see that commercial, I'm like, you know, that says to me that, wow, like our world is coming to an end really quickly. (laughs) Our children don't have a future. So I guess what I'm bringing in here to talk about is climate change, global warming. Is it actually happening? And if so, to what extent is it like what these commercials say it is? Well, I mean, the 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 easy answer is we have no clue. We have okay. no idea. Uh, uh, predicting the future is extremely difficult. And uh, but a, a lot of people with political agendas seem to be very happy to try. So, you know, back in the 1970s, when I was in school, I was told that by the time I was an adult, the only trees you would see would be in museums because air pollution would have destroyed all the trees and uh, we'd all have to walk around in uh, masks and gas masks and so forth because the pollution uh, was going to be that bad. And and we watched movies in school about this. Mm. And that was their prediction for my adulthood. We're at my adulthood and none of that happened. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. there's a a real famous uh, environmentalist by the name of Paul Ehrlich, who for since the 1980s, has been predicting that the world's population is going to explode. And in the 1980s, he was saying by the year 2000, there would be massive famines and all of this. And none of that happened either. 
And in fact, you know, even on the global warming issue, we had the vice president uh, making a statement from the podium that in five years, the Arctic would be ice free. And that was like 10 years ago. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we hear those kind of predictions all the time, Mm. but they don't come true. Uh, because predicting the future is extremely difficult. Uh, <laughs> uh, my when I whenever I hear stuff like that, I just immediately say, "Well, all I have to do is think back on all the other predictions I've heard like this, and they've been all false." <laughs> so okay. I can't imagine that this one's going to be true. And I would say something about wildfires because it started with wildfires. Uh, mm-hmm. This is this is the way people who want to push an agenda rather than worry about the actual state of the planet do things. If you actually plot the number of acres in the United States burned by wildfires and you make a graph from the year 1970 to the present, you will find that there has been a general increase in the number of wildfires. Uh, It hasn't been huge, but the number of wildfires have roughly doubled since 1970. And if you go to a government website or a website of one of these groups that wants to scare you like that, that's what you see. However, if you simply go back a little farther in time and you start your graph at 1930, you will find that the number of acres of wildfire have decreased by a factor of five. So in 1930, there were five times as many uh, acres uh, in the United States burned by a wildfire than there are today. So starting in 1970, you have a completely different story than if you start in 1930. Now, global warming is supposed to be this slow process that takes a long time. And so if you're wanting to learn about global warming, you should get all the data you can. And if you look at all the data related to wildfires, you'll see their prediction is demonstrably false. Wildfires over since 1930 have decreased by over a factor of five. Wow. And this idea that, uh, that we know that more, more acres are going to be burned uh, by the time she's a certain age is just silly because, in fact, people who were born in the 1930s experienced a lot more wildfires than we do today. Okay. But see, people, when they hear that, I don't, I, I don't look into all this stuff. Well, but and and, I'm and sure many people try, are like me. They don't. Yeah, and even people who try to look at, into it, if they go to a, a source that wants to scare you, they mm-hmm. show you a, a selective view of the data. And that's what happens a lot. And this happens on all sides uh, of all issues. When mm-hmm. I'm trying to use science to, to, to try and show you that I'm right. Uh, if I really want to make my point, I will simply show you the data that support my point really well. <laughs> And I will ignore okay. all the data that don't. And this this wildfire thing is a classic example. If I want to scare you, I show you wildfires from 1970. If I don't <laughs> want to scare you, I'll show you the wildfires since 1930. And those two graphs tell a completely different story. Very interesting. You just mentioned um, sources. And that leads me to my next question. Where are those um, sources coming from, especially those who seem to be in the extreme line of thought that the world's coming to an end very soon. We've got a global catastrophe right on the brink due to global warming. Where do they get their info and statistics from? And are they accurate and valid? I know when you and I had talked previously, you mentioned the three different ways that they measure global temperatures and how all three models disagree with each other. Right. Right. Elaborate on that for the listener. So yeah, you'd think you'd think it'd be fairly easy to measure the average temperature of the Earth. Uh, uh, so the method that's been around the longest, because it's the lowest tech method, uh, is to just 
put a bunch of thermometers all over the place, uh, call people who, who are looking at those thermometers and monitoring those thermometers, and take some sort of average of all the thermometer readings. Uh, and that's called, that's typically referred to as the surface temperature of the Earth, because these thermometers are either sitting in a, you know, in a building somewhere, or they've got even thermometers floating on buoys in the ocean. So you get ocean temperatures as well. So those are the surface temperatures. And if you look at surface temperatures, since these uh, uh, measurements have been seriously started, which is back in the late 1800s, you see that the average temperature of the earth is increased by about a degree Celsius over that period. Um, however, uh, since 1979, a much more accurate way of measuring global temperature uh, came available because we started putting satellites in the air that could actually measure the temperature of the atmosphere by using microwaves. And the satellites have these things called microwave sounding units on them. And they measure the temperature of the, of the atmosphere. What's nice about that is a satellite can take the entire earth, the temperature of the entire earth over the course of uh, a short time. So the satellite is actually sampling the entire earth rather than just little pockets of the thermometer samples and then trying to average them. These satellite uh, temperatures differ radically, radically from <laughs> the surface temperatures. Um, and of course, you know, the satellite temperatures have only been around since 1979. So, you know, we don't have as much uh, data on them. But since 1979, there's only been a, a little fraction of warming in the satellite record. And more importantly, if you look at the satellite record, they'll say that the hottest year on record was 1998. That's what the uh, satellite temperatures tell us. But well, not the hottest year, but one of the hottest years on record is 1998. But the surface temperatures don't show that peak in temperature at all. They show a nice upward, uh, smooth upward trend without that peak. So if I look at the details of the temperature, not only is the overall warming different, but the actual details of the temperature are different. So these thermometer readings don't agree with the satellite readings. Well, there's another way we measure temperature, and that's we throw these weather balloons up and let them ride the jet streams and so forth, and we try and get them to average the uh, temperature of the Earth. Those produce a third data set that doesn't agree with the first two. Mm. <laughs> so we have three ways of currently measuring the temperature of the Earth, and they all disagree. Now, the one that looks scariest is the one that shows surface temperatures increasing fairly smoothly over time. So guess which one you typically see if you go to a site that wants to convince you global warming is a problem. Mm -hmm. You're going to see the surface temperatures. Right. If you want, if you go to a site that do doesn't want you to think global warming is a problem, you'll see the satellite temperatures because they show the least amount of warming. And, and so, like I said, both sides do this. The, the side that wants to scare you does this. The side that wants to say this isn't a problem does this. And a, a real scientist, and there aren't that many of them. There really aren't that many real scientists these days. But real scientists like Richard Lindzen, for example, who's a climatologist, look at both sides. Uh, and, and Richard Lindzen's conclusion is, yes, there's a little bit of warming. No, we have no idea how much of it is due to humans. And no, we have no idea how much is going to happen in the future. And that's, mm. that's the real scientific conclusion. The real scientific conclusion is we just don't know enough about global temperatures and global climate to know what's going to happen in the future. To be making these dire predictions, yeah. right, that people are being fearful yeah. over. I mean, I don't know how technical you want to get here, but uh, there's this quantity, this physical quantity that every climatologist would like to know. It's called the equilibrium climate sensitivity. 
and the equilibrium climate sensitivity uh, is how uh, much will the global temperature increase if the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere doubles? So, you know, it's a measure of how serious carbon dioxide is to temperature. Mm -hmm. uh, now, we are, the carbon dioxide levels since pre-industrial ages have risen about 50%. So they haven't doubled. They're about halfway to doubling, right? Okay. Uh, so, and, and equilibrium climate sensitivity, that would tell you how bad it's going to get. Because we know, okay, every time it doubles, it's going to raise this much uh, degrees. Well, the problem is lots and lots of scientists have done lots and lots of studies to figure it out. And we've narrowed it down to somewhere between half a degree and six degrees. <laughs> so doubling carbon dioxide scientifically uh, should raise temperatures somewhere between half a degree and six degrees. <laughs> Okay, and but the that, problem that... Is, yeah, the problem is if it's six degrees or five degrees or four degrees, maybe even three degrees, that could lead to some some catastrophic things like the okay. uh, sea levels rising and things like that. Mm -hmm. If it's half a degree or one degree, then it's not going to be something that's going to even allow us to catch up with temperatures from the past because we know it was warmer in the past. We haven't even gotten to where it was warmer in the past yet. Uh, and so if the equilibrium climate sensitivity is, say, one degree, we'll eventually get back to the average temperature of the medieval period. Uh, but that'll probably take another century. I was but just going to ask you time frame for that. I mean, yeah. even, even if it did, say, worst case scenario, it did go up that many degrees. I mean... Maybe I'm asking you to answer a question that's impossible. Like, what would, how long would something like that take? Well, you know, if if there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the amount of carbon dioxide in the air and temperature and the equilibrium climate sensitivity is linear, uh, then we would say, well, since the pre-industrial age, it's taken almost a uh, hundred years to get to 50% more carbon dioxide. If nothing changes, it'll take another hundred years to get the next 50%, then we'll reach the doubling. So in roughly a hundred years, if current things continue, we'll have double the amount of carbon dioxide than, than in pre-industrial times. And so then if the equilibrium climate sensitivity is six, the temperature will go will have, will have increased by six degrees. If the equilibrium climate sensitivity is two, it will have increased by two degrees. But that's still a century mm -hmm. away and that doesn't mean it's it, it's it's not important but it does mean that it's going to be slow okay um, because that's the way these things work right but what we can say is every model that th that's been used to predict what's supposed to be happening in the future so far has been shown to be wrong so if I go back to the earliest UN reports on climate change uh, and I look at their models and say, okay, they predicted by now the temperature should be this. What I find is the temperature is much, much, much lower. And even if I look at the models 10 years ago and ask them what they predicted for now, even those models still uh, predicted too high a temperature. The general phrase that climatologists use is the models run hot. And what mm. that means is they are over predicting the increases in temperatures that we've seen since those models, you know, have been developed. But of course, people who want to scare you will say, well, these are the newest and best models and we know they're right. So what these models today are saying about 20 years from now, we can believe. Yeah, we couldn't believe the models back in the 80s, but we can believe these models. <laughs> but we won't know <laughs> until we actually see, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, you had mentioned the fact that it had been warmer, and I know you mentioned the medieval times, and last time we talked, you um, 
said something very interesting about what that period of time was known as. Oh yeah. So first of all, uh, it's been known for a long time and fairly hush hush among those, among those people who want you to think this is a problem, but it's been known for a long time that in the Northern hemisphere, it was much warmer during medieval times than it is today. And that's a well, I don't, I don't even know, even the most radical global warming alarmists would have to admit that because if you look at things like harvest records and all these kinds of things and tree rings and so forth, it's clear that the climate was warmer in medieval times than it is now. And it was thought for a long time that was just a Northern Hemisphere thing, that in the Southern Hemisphere it was much cooler. Well, lots of studies have been done since uh, trying to use things like tree rings and harvest records and so forth to tease out what uh, past climate was. And basically in every section of the world, uh, so, you know, you have... uh, the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere. Uh, sometimes you you break it up. Uh, the Oceania, like Australia, New Zealand. So are all these different regions: the Antarctic versus the Arctic. Every region that has been studied was warmer in medieval times than it is now. And that was actually called, and it's called this in the literature. It's not something I'm making up. It's in the scientific literature. It's called the medieval climate optimum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was the optimum because people were growing a lot more food back then uh, than later on. And so it was thought to be a, sort of the optimal climate for people living and being farmers and things like that. So mm. uh, a lot of people these days call it the medieval warm period, but the literature still generally calls it the medieval climate optimum. <laughs> so we haven't even gotten warm enough that we've gotten back to the climate optimum yet. Right. And you had told me, too, that it was even warmer in the Roman times. Yes. Uh, so the the Roman warm period. And it's thought that the Roman warm period was a little warm because the uh, and of course, you know, we're dealing with even more ancient times. So it's possible records aren't as good. But mm. based on everything we know, the food growing and everything wasn't quite as good in the Roman warm period as it is during the medieval climate optimum. And that's why the medieval climate optimum is called the optimum, because it, too warm can be bad, too cold sure. can be bad. This medieval times seem to be perfect, at least for growing crops. So yeah, this is called the Roman warm period and the Roman warm period, uh, you know, occurs in like 300 uh, AD or something like that. And that's even warmer than medieval climate optimum. So we aren't even, we aren't even back to medieval times yet, much less Roman <laughs> time in terms of how much, how, how warm the earth is. Well, my thinking and correct me if I'm wrong, just you know, the fact that it was much warmer, like back in the Roman times, the world is still existing. Um, I, I, you know, I don't recall anything. I don't think anything catastrophic happened to right. Well, to, and, and, and for life you, to come to an end, even when it was that warm back then. Oh yeah. Right. Exactly. So, so the earth seemed to be doing fi- fine back then. And of course, if you believe uh, uh, the sort of standard view of the geological record, the geological record says it's even, it was even significantly more warm when the dinosaurs were around. Uh, so during the Cretaceous and the Jurassic period, it was much, much warmer than even in the Roman warm period. And the earth still survived that as well. Now, what people who want to scare you will tell you is that, well, you know, the medieval people, uh, they didn't have cities and things like that, that they could like up and move. So if they were at, near the ocean and the ocean lo- ri- arose, then they could just up and move a little bit and everything would be fine. But, you know, we have these cities that can't move and they'll, they'll be underwater and things like that. Uh, but you know, the fact is I've seen a lot of Roman cities and they were pretty extensive and pretty, yeah. <laughs> pretty hard to move too. 
<laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure that's a, a reasonable uh, argument. Wow. Well, let's let's move on to um, fossil fuels yeah. for a little bit here because I know you know they're really pushing the green. Um, especially since this last administration has, has taken over. We're pushing the green. We've got the Green New Deal, which, as we know, is trillions and trillions of mm-hmm. dollars that we don't have. But talk a little bit about fossil fuels and pro- what people's problem is with the fossil well, okay, fuels in so, particular. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the problem with fossil fuels, if, if, you, uh, if you think it's a problem, is that every time you burn any kind of fossil fuel, whether it's oil or, or uh, natural gas or anything like that, uh, coal, whatever, you're going to produce carbon dioxide. And this carbon dioxide is what's supposed to be warming the earth. So obviously, the more you use fossil fuels, the more carbon dioxide you put in the air, the warmer the earth gets. That's the story. Um, but there's a reason fossil fuels are used so much, and that's because they're very inexpensive and they're very efficient. Uh, so we can reliably heat our homes and do our transportation and all of that with these fossil fuels. Uh, One of the really pernicious lies that these uh, people who want to scare you will tell you is that the only reason we're not doing a lot more quote unquote green energy is because the fossil fuel industry is making so much money. They're keeping companies from going green and doing things like solar and wind and so forth. And that is just patent false. If any company could go completely green and stay functional, they would. Hmm. Because in the end, they would that would be the very best marketing strategy they could ever have. True. Buy from us and it's all green, it's perfect for the environment. And you see that you go to the grocery store and you get this all natural stuff. It costs 3 times as much as the regular stuff yeah. because once again, they can do that because the marketing is so good, it, it, everybody wants to be good to the environment. But the fact is, all of this green energy is incredibly expensive and incredibly unreliable. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. in the end, companies can't rely on it. And if they try and change to it, all of their prices go up. So I'm telling you right now, and I've said this to audiences around the world, if green energy were as efficient and even just slightly more expensive than fossil fuel, we'd be done with fossil fuels already. Mm. We'd be completely done because every company would go that way. Mm -hmm. The problem is they aren't green, quote unquote, green uh, things like solar and wind are incredibly more expensive and generally a lot more efficient. And even countries that tried to go green, like Australia, uh, they, they tried to go green really hard. They tried to keep increasing the percentage of their uh, energy production that's green. They ended up having to go back because first of all, the the people were spending way too much money on uh, energy and therefore that that uh, contracted the entire economy of the country. Uh, but secondly, these green things were so unreliable that there were rolling brownouts and things like that in all the major cities. And so in the end, we know that at this point, we can't go green in any reasonable way. Now, that's not to say that we should stop working on going green. I don't have mm-hmm. any problem with that. Mm-hmm. I think the the problem is you can't go green until, first of all, you're ready to. And secondly, that right. you know they're, they're actually green. Because, you know, everybody says wind power is green. But what 
most of these people who promote wind power aren't going to tell you is in the journal science, wind turbines have now been named an apex predator. In the U.S. alone, they're responsible for tens of thousands of raptor deaths every year, and raptors are endangered species, and hundreds of thousands of bat deaths every year. Um, and so it's, you know, it's green in the sense that it doesn't produce carbon dioxide, but it's slaughtering creatures left and right. So it's not mm. clear it's green in that sense. And that's one of the big problems. You have these, uh, these supposed green solutions, but it's not clear that when you add everything together, it's really that green. Electric cars are supposed to be green. First of all, electricity is one of the most inefficient storage mediums in the world. So whatever you're doing to power that battery is an inefficient way of powering it. So that means somebody's burning something more somewhere. Uh, but more importantly, just the, the uh, environmental impacts of making those batteries is a huge. Uh, these batteries are incredibly toxic for the environment. Uh, so it's not even clear that, uh, that uh, electric cars are really that green. But we call them green because they don't produce carbon dioxide. Yeah, and I I was going to get to that in a little bit about the electric cars too. I want I had a couple things I did want to ask you in regard to that. Um, but we were talking, you know, the green energy, and you said the cost. Now we're we're talking about dollar terms, but there's another even more important cost that you had shared with me in going green, especially before we're ready. Oh sure. So. You know, this is something that most people aren't aware of, but we know from the scientific literature that whenever energy costs go up, human deaths go up. And that is it for part one of my interview with Dr. Jay Weil. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have enjoyed speaking with him. Please join me next week. Come back and we'll hear part two and more of what Dr. Weil has to say in regard to this often um, controversial subject. You can reach him at blog.drweil.com. That's W-I-L-E. That's how you spell his last name, blog.drweil.com. He has a lot of uh, wonderful, informative articles on actually all kinds of things. They're not, not just global warming or, or climate change. So song for the week, the song I've chosen is, and again, as I tell people, my song, uh, the songs that I pick uh, can be found on YouTube, and I will provide the link to the song, but the song is called I Can Face Tomorrow, and it's by Mike Manor. Excellent song. I think that will really tie in with what we talked about today, just to encourage you in our crazy, upside-down, topsy-turvy world where we really don't know what tomorrow is going to bring but we do know the one who holds the future. So that's the song for the week. Hey, if you like this podcast or this episode, please subscribe, please like. I'm on all major podcast platforms as well as the wonderful Christian podcast community. Leave a review. Those are always, always welcome. Love to hear from you. And for those that do take the time, thank you so very much. I really, really appreciate you. So be that one little candle this week, okay? Don't fear. And, you know, take the time to check things out for yourself. Don't just automatically, we're all guilty of this in one way, shape, or form. Let's not just take everything we hear and assume that, that it's correct or people have done their homework. Because sometimes, and unfortunately, I think all too often, that's not the case. Do yours. 
Dr. Weil mentioned um, a couple of resources too. I will have the links for those as well. So you can check it out on, on my website, onelittlecandle.com um, or in the, the podcast description. So be that one little candle this week. Don't live in fear. Know that you may not know what the future holds, but God does. Yes, we need to be good stewards of this planet. God's given us a wonderful, amazing world, a planet to live on, and he expects us to take good care of it. And in actually next week's episode, Dr. Wild will talk about some of the problems that we are facing for sure that are happening right now, not just speculated problems that we don't even know for sure, but problems right now that we're dealing with in which we need to perhaps step up to the plate and resolve these issues. I hope you have a great week. I hope it's a week where you're healthy, where you're not living in fear. God tells us, fear not, over and over in the Bible, fear not, fear not. He's with us. He holds the future and he loves us. He's a good, good God. Until next week, you take care and God bless.